Charles here. Welcome to the 97th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Sean Ramsey, a scholar and teacher of writing at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. We have two myths, major rhetorical myths, that are conceptual in nature and that post-date the development of literacy in these cultures. And second, these myths were used to develop rhetorical culture over time, specifically in China and Samaria. So, you know, later rhetoricians in China, ancient China and Samaria would refer back to these mythic episodes and stories to develop and, and adapt their rhetoric to changing ideas in their culture. So you've got the story of Enmerkar and you've got the story of Kangji. And, and these two stories, the, the similarities are eerie for being so far apart in time and space. And that's what got me thinking about the trans-rhetorical nature of myth. You'll hear more from Sean in a bit. But first, I want to share with you some information about the Global Society for Online Literacy Educators' final webinar in the 21-22 series called Toward Linguistic Inclusivity, Evaluating Approaches to Instructional Materials and Technology, which will be held on April 29th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. This webinar will focus on the importance of linguistic accessibility in our online courses by briefly sharing selected study data that suggests that we need to be cognizant of the impact that our instructions on technology use in the classroom have on student success for our linguistically diverse students in our online classrooms. While we teach writing first, we can't teach writing online without technology. Inaccessible interfaces and instructional materials can impede any of our students' success, but can have the largest unintended impact on our students who speak non-standard varieties of English. Sarah and Braun, 2020. We draw on the framework of humanizing online teaching to provide methods for making online literacy courses linguistically accessible through our technology instructions. In the webinar, participants will work on increasing accessibility in technology instructions by reflecting on the impact of their own linguistic practices on their teaching of online literacy. Workshop materials from online courses that incorporate hands-on practice in small groups. Enhance their understanding of how their own linguistic practices play a role in their teaching. You can find more information about and register for the event on the GSOL website, gsole.org. Sean Ramsey is a scholar and a teacher of writing at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. He studies the history of ideas and the relationship of ancient and modern myth 
to rhetoric and writing. This interest is historical, anthropological, and psychological. He is currently writing about the relationship of myth to the idea of the autonomy and volition of ideas. He has written about rhetoric in medieval Europe, Roman antiquity, 19th century America, ancient Greece, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. Today, we discuss opportunities for scholars to examine myth in global culture and rhetoric. I hope you enjoy the interview. Your name, your title, your institution, and your role there. Who are you and what do you do? I am Sean Ramsey. I teach at uh, writing, uh, mainly professional technical writing now at Nazarbayev University for at least for a little while more. And uh, I am uh, a PhD in writing and rhetoric. My, my interests are... Uh, International uh, rhetoric, sort of not international rhetoric, I would say. Global rhetorics, um, ancient rhetorics, medieval rhetoric. Anyway, the history of rhetoric. And uh, I I study that. I study, and lately, myth and rhetoric, which isn't, you know, like a field. (laughs) It can be. It could be. It could be. Where is your university located? What country are you in? I'm in the nation, the People's Republic of Kazakhstan. And for those who don't know, uh, that's our northern border is Russia. Our western border uh, touches on Ukraine and our eastern border is with China. Okay, so we're going to have to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But first, let's acknowledge that you aren't from Kazakhstan. You're from Indiana. So how did you get there? And I'm going to butcher this. So correct me. Uh, Nazarbayev University? Yeah, that's right. All right. How did you wind up there? Uh, I had been teaching in China. And I had some uh, issues where I had to come home for a year. And uh, I, I, I didn't see China as viable anymore. So at least for the time being, due to geopolitical issues and then but I've been talking for a long time to Kerry Pazinski, our director here, and uh, decided to come back here. Um, I, I really quite enjoy being abroad. I'd lived in North America most of my adult life, and, uh, you know, it's nothing personal, <laughs> like, but I'd rather be here. And yeah, and I'm you know, folks who listen to the podcast now, I kind of look at the CV, and you've been you've been you've been here and back and a couple places. It's pretty exciting, especially as you mentioned, your interest is in actually you know one of the one of your interests is in global rhetorics, right? So I wonder, yeah. like, what is what what pushes you in that direction? What what is your value? How do you um how do you value that? I guess that's a that's a dumb way of saying like what what's your exigency in Kairos for for studying global rhetoric? Well, I, I am I'm very good with languages. I I, I don't know. If, I mean, if you I I speak Latin, Greek. I I'm okay with ancient Chinese. Not really. I wouldn't say I am an expert. Uh, Russian. Uh, 
And I even read some cuneiform and some uh, hieroglyphic. Uh, wow. And, but that that's neither here nor there so much as I picked those up in the course of my scholarship. What I really enjoy is living in different cultures and learning about life from their perspective. And, and you can learn so much. And, and, not, and, and often life has this way of, as, as some of my new scholarship talks about a little bit, of putting synchronous experiences in front of you. And, and one of those was I was teaching a course in China on uh, the history of language systems, which sadly rhetoric and composition doesn't often require. The history of writing systems, the history of, uh, you know, writing technology. Right. That's interesting. And um, I taught, you know, the, many of the sources in the textbooks talk very little about the origins of, of writing. And but I, I love old stuff in history and uh, the human past, you know, and I so I talk a great deal about it. And my student in China said, uh Yes, we have we have a similar story about the beginning of language here. I said, well, what? Yes, there was a man with four eyes and two pupils in each eye who could control dragons who invented the Chinese characters. And I said, are you guys pulling my leg again? Are you joking? Because <laughs> I swear if you're doing this to me again. Again. Because <laughs> <laughs> we did that to each other. Really, I started it. Um, so, uh, this got me thinking, uh, as, as these things do, because how do you forget that, right? Four eyes, two pupils in each eye and something to do with dragons. He was talking about Kang uh, and it got me thinking about origin stories about language and were there such stories about rhetoric? And it turns out they are often one and the same. And they exist in all of these cultures, Egypt, well, not Egypt, in terms of origin stories, there are origin stories, but uh, Sumeria, extensive analogical myths. Um, <clears throat> and everywhere, there are myths about how to make myths and myths about how to speak and write. Uh, and, and this was, I, you know, it's like uh, when I was doing my graduate work, I stumbled on the letters of Eleanor of Aquitaine and women's rhetoric was very, a uh, very big interest at that time, still is. And I said, how did they miss this? How did my colleagues need to hear about this, right? Uh, we need, we need to know. We, we have a need to know. So um, I, uh, you know. Uh, that's usually what gets me to write is I find something that somebody, somebody unaccountably missed. And I'm, I need to tell my colleagues, I'm going to scream for help as loud and as long as I possibly can until somebody pays attention to this big thing I found buried in the dirt that may have some significance for uh, what we do, what we do. So you mentioned that you like living in different cultures and you like, um, you know, being a part of that culture. Right. So let's let's take let's take this in two ways. First of all, let's talk about what's going on in Kazakhstan currently and what, what's the culture like there, your life like there. And then 
we can parlay that out in a second into talking about your position within the region. Oh, okay. Well, recently, I know, I know the some of the audience will know this. It may by the time this comes on, it may not be news. Ukraine's as we speak, Ukraine's about what we're worried, or the U.S. is worried that Ukraine's about to get invaded. And I'm not holding forth as a geopolitical expert. I only know what's going on from the people who are here, who are experts in the region and and live here and know what's going on. There was some unrest in Kazakhstan, and there seems to be a flashpoint at the borders of Russia with all kinds of trouble. What kind of unrest in Kazakhstan? Uh, I was. I can only tell you what I saw. I am not in a position to critique my hosts who have been so very good to me. Uh, and I, uh, but I was in Almaty. I chose to go to Almaty, which is our other major city other than Nur Sultan, where I am. And it, I mean, we have big cities, but there, no, those are the two big cities here. And um, much to my chagrin, that's where the the unrest broke out. And there were there were a lot of public buildings got burned, and about it turns out about 150 meters from my hotel window was where all the fighting was going on. So uh, on on the morning of it, this happens to me all the time. I am always in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, so <laughs> it, it's 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 a law of nature. Chaos and entropy follow me wherever I go. So uh, the I awoke on the morning of the January the fifth to the sound of small arms fire from a dream that I was back in Chicago. Uh, it was a lot like that, but with flash grenades. And so um, you know, I woke up and I asked uh, my dear friend Almagul Zumabakova. Uh, what the hell is going on? Isn't New Year's over? Does it go on like in China for several days? She says, no, we don't shoot off fireworks. And everyone was in the hotel was extremely uneasy. You know, there's the fighting is going on. Right. And we don't have normally we you there are, are no guns and no crime. There is no crime. Now, if you ask a Kazakh person if they have crime here. They'll be like, yes, we had a very bad problem with domestic violence. We had 12 whole cases in the country last year. And you look at them and you're like, you know where I come from? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, we had a murder last year. Um, so that kind of thing. So anyway, uh, I managed to make it to the Almaty airport. Uh, before it was overwhelmed by protesters. And I'm greeted by 20 sort of embarrassed looking Kazakh soldiers who are guarding the entrance. You know, I'm like, wow, this is like, this is some real stuff here, right? And, uh, and I'm waiting on my plane. It's delayed. And I, I ask, uh, I ask uh, a, 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 another Kazakh citizen who's a young guy, uh, medical student, I'm like, what is going on? You know, I'm just waking up and the rioting has been going on for, for a while. 
and and their version of the story and i don't know whether what it is but the what i hear over and over is that their political system is and their economic system is oppressed by a handful of oligarchs with political connections who prevent the country from having any meaningful accountability in government or in uh, in uh, economic uh, opportunity. And, uh, you know, he's telling me all this stuff and we, we got hours to wait on the plane. And, uh, and I said, oh, yeah, it sounds like home. So, uh, you know, you hear the word corruption, but I'm not sure what that means to them. Like, but like, there's a lot of socioeconomic unrest because the great disparity in wealth is what I'm able to infer. I mean, and, and I, I don't just hear it from one lone medical student. Uh, I hear it frequently. So that's that's what's up, I guess. You meant, go ahead, sorry. I guess, I yeah. guess. And you mentioned, you know, Kazakhstan borders Germany. Oh, but, uh, yeah, Kazakhstan, yeah. It borders Russia to the north, Ukraine is to our west, and China is to the east. How is the Ukraine situation impacting? I know like listeners can't see this because it's an audio podcast, but we were talking earlier and you mentioned your shirt. Your shirt is a shirt in support of of Ukraine. So no, it just happens to be a Ukrainian shirt. Oh, it happens to be a Ukrainian shirt. Oh, okay. (laughs) I misinterpreted (laughs) that earlier. Either way, it's a Ukrainian shirt, right? It is. is, So in some ways there is support in uh Tell us a little bit about how that situation is occur- unfolding uh, well, from your position. Here, here there is uh, nothing going on. We know nothing. There, you would not know anything's going on. Because Kazakhstan is a huge country, and I'm, we're nowhere near here. We're nowhere near Ukraine. And I again, I know very little about the geopolitics there, but our concern or the concern of Kazakh people I talk to is that the West uh, will sanction Kazakhstan because we have great ties with Russia. I mean, very strong ties. And it implicates banking and trade, but you know, Here's the thing. It, it, it would be so very unjust were that to happen, because if you talk to a Kazakh person and mention you are from America, and I've had this happen hundreds of times, the first thing out of their mouth is, my dream is to go to America. They abs- In their historical narrative, they were rescued from a hundred years of famine and abuse from the Soviet Union by us. And they don't deserve to be sort of thrown in to this Cold War Part Two. you know? Let's talk about myth and rhetoric. Myth and rhetoric, global rhetoric, global myth. We got into that and uh, a little bit, but uh, as my research has progressed, you know, you find a lot of, Myths, individual myths, 
that implicate or are directly implicate rhetorical action in, throughout the world. Some are, you know, for a long time, myths were characterized as and associated with some sort of pre-rational savage mind, as as uh, one theorist called it. It was very, it was very heavy imperialist racist stuff, right? That uh, uh, some of these theorists, early theorists of myth, came up with. Not so early, pretty recent, and. So a lot of experts in literacy and, and even that extended into rhetoric associated myth for a long time with a pre-rational discourse. Muthos, myth, was distinct from logos, which was Aristotle and Plato and rationalism and, you know, right? But in fact, there's an enormous uh, bleed over. Uh, and, and as I pointed out in a recent article, there are myths that pre follow the development of literacy in extremely old and advanced cultures. There are myths about how writing was in them, so they're not pre-literate. And there are myths that make rational arguments, reasoned arguments, by analogy, by analogical reasoning, and also by syllogistic reasoning. There, so... They have not been studied extensively, but Jeffrey Walker and uh, uh, Johnstone, Henry and Johnstone, and their work uh, has kind of opened the door for it. But the problem is, it's the one and the many. The problem of the one and the many with these things. You have many of these myths, many, many, many of these myths. But. Is Sean Ramsey a the guy to come up with the theory of universal myth? No. I don't even think that those who've tried for four or 500 years to understand myth theoretically have come anywhere near it. And not for, but they've given us, all given us great insights. So lately I've been focusing on uh, trans, the idea of transrhetoricity, as as outlined by uh, Rachel Jackson's work, and and talked about talking about transrhetorical myth systems. That is, I take all these little myths, some are big myths, and I put them all together, and uh, uh, I said, what do these things have in common? What are they? Which what are what's going on with these? And when you do that, you find that they have an amazing number of qualities they all share. And I'm talking about myth systems from Austro-Aboriginal cultures all the way to Roman culture. They all share these qualities. Certainly, one of the things I've noticed is that you've been writing about this a great deal recently and finding success in publications. Specifically, you have a couple of rhetoric review or a rhetoric review article. You have a couple of rhetoric society quarterly articles. What it sounds to me like is that there is a genuine interest in this topic within the field of rhetoric and composition, rhetoric and writing studies, technical communication, however you want to think about it. I do want to ask about one of those publications. Uh, and that is the one from rhetoric review. Um, progenitor myths, 
and the telos of ancient rhetorical culture a short <laughs> primer how did that article come to be and what's your what are some of your primary arguments there this was the article where i said look this should be dispositively put away because we have two myths major rhetorical myths that are conceptual in nature and that post-date the development of literacy in these cultures. And second, these myths were used to develop rhetorical culture over time, specifically in China and Samaria. So, you know, later rhetoricians in China, ancient China and Samaria would refer back to these mythic episodes and stories, well, not, not as much in Samaria, but China, to develop and, and adapt their rhetoric to changing ideas in their culture. And, and you see that again and again, again and again, yeah. Um, and and uh, so you've got the story of Enmerkar and you've got the story of uh, Kangji. And, and these two stories, the, the similarities are eerie for being so far apart in time and space. And that's what got me thinking about the trans-rhetorical nature of myth. Since you mentioned in Mercar, I do want to let other let listeners know that if you're interested in this work, and I certainly am, but I told Sean off air, I have no, I don't know anything about it, um, that that he has another piece that you might be interested in, from sunlight to shadow and back again in Mercar and the Lord of Arata, and then an anal analogical couldn't say that word, and the analogical reasoning in Mesopotamian rhetoric. So that's in Rhetoric Society Quarterly. Do seek that out, listeners. All right. There's another article on your CV, though, that's forthcoming. And like I told you earlier, it's all about that tragic academic what's next, right? And we'll talk more about what's really next with some of the other things you're working on. But this one is forthcoming in 2022. And I don't know how to say the first word here. Um, so I'm going to say it out loud and then maybe you can correct me. Psychopompos? Psychopompos. Psychopompos. So the title of this article is Psychopompo, Thoth, Plato's Phaedrus, and the Context of Egyptian Mythic Rhetorical Fault. So right. it, this is one of, about Plato and, and the Egyptian god Thoth, which we all know probably from our PhD programs and reading Phaedrus of this little episode with, with Thoth. Uh, I was no fan of Plato when I was in grad school, but I have grown increasingly increasingly fond of him. It's like a disfiguring lump, but uh, less like a disfiguring lump, more like an, a, an endearing mole. You can't escape him, you know? So anyway, the, the, uh, this points out that Plato was reputed to uh, have gone to Egypt and probably knew the, the mythology and the, the theology of, of priests. He, contemporary sources with him said he went to Egypt. He talked to the priests. And he, re, he refers to the god Tooth, or Toth, uh, recursively, repeatedly, in the Philebus and, and in Phaedrus. And, uh, and it's all not, not in Philebus, but in the context of rhetoric. You know, he uses him as an exemplar which is conventionally interpreted to say he was critical of writing 
as a way of knowing. And God, Toth is, was the god of writing. Uh, this examines Toth's Egyptian provenance. So what did Plato know? What, what was he reacting to? If indeed he went, if indeed he knew. Um, yeah, so... And then I got a I got a piece that deals a little bit with Toth that points out that's coming out in uh, also supposed to be 2022, but it's looking like 2023 in a Rutledge handbook about the liminality of these gods and messengers in rhetorical myth. But uh, yeah, so that's what Toth is about. Toth's always been interesting to me he, as a, you know, this weird wow. bird headed guy. He's got a bird bird head. A bird's head. <laughs> so, Sean, why is this work important right now? What makes this so important in our current cultural moment globally? In your situation, in your position as an international scholar uh, back here in the, in, in the states. Okay, it's the so what question. All right, that's what I'm working on now. Uh, and and not, that's not to say, I mean, the article's finished, but I haven't sent it off because I'm like, eh, I don't know if I want to do this. So, because uh, as you can imagine, writing this many things on myth, I kind of have a book project, but I feel like it would be, uh, you know, so anyway, here's the, here's what I came up with. Uh, trans rhetoricity. Many writing teachers associate their uh, teaching with social justice or activism. Myth has been positing this epistemic relationship for literate mediators and this relationship between civic engagement and the world of ideas for a long time. And, and, and a very long time. Uh, like 7,000 years in global cultures, right? So, and it does so in myth. Uh, this, is, this is why it's relevant. And it does so, so in culture, so disparate in time, space, and similarity that it makes you go, what? is going on. This phenomena gives me feelings of unease in my crawl space, conceptual crawl space and basement. Uh, the, how could this be, right? And, and so what I, I posit, at least as one theoretical aspect of myth and writing and writing studies is that these ideas resonate with us on a subconscious, a primal, the deep structure of our psyche. They are part of our collective unconscious, uh, which of course is not new, a new concept, that's, that's young. Um, but Rachel Jackson's work suggests that trans rhetoricity shows us that these nexus points, right, where cultures cross and spaces exist where all cultures share common commonalities in rhetorical action uh, are not just related to space and time as we understand it. And Ekaterina Assens has talked about this too. 
they are exist in mythic time in mythic space and so when uh, you look at these myths they have certain salient commonalities even Austro, you know Austro Aboriginal myths which you would not think you know you'd think well maybe Western myths maybe Chinese myths to a certain extent maybe you know but no they're everywhere they're not they don't obey our sort of imposition of borders and and cultural barriers and, and those qualities if you want to we want to talk about them are the number one they posit that there are two worlds that exist in tandem one world overlaid over the other sort of like a lamination you know a laminated piece of paper you know charles are you following me like a laminated piece of paper i'm like following laminated Okay, okay, okay. So, like, the plastic that's over the piece of paper is the piece of paper. They're, they're two layers of one reality. That's the first thing they have in common. And depending on the culture, how do we get from one layer to the other? So, in all of these myths, uh, they, they suggest that there are liminal entities that move between those worlds the conceptual world or the world of the gods or the world of perfect forms in our world and it could be toth it could be enmerkar it could be the goddess nasaba it could be the goddess seishat those two are the what's next um, among other things but uh, it could be um, Manco Kepe in Aztec culture, I believe. No, Ma Aztec? Ma uh, this has to do with my pitch later. Uh, okay, it could be, uh, but what the Austro Aboriginal people call it is Chikurpa, the other world, the dream time. In Austro Aboriginal culture, the dream time <clears throat> is this state of laminated existence that overlays our own. Everything we do in this reality is was already set in the dream time. Everything was already spoken. And when uh, and so we merely reify the 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 people, places, entities, the entia, as Jung would call them, from the dream time in this in this reality, and when we tell stories in in their culture, we uh, from the dream time they are made real. Now, but that that doesn't really touch on it because if you were to ask a a person from the central desert of Australia or the Torres Strait, um, an Austro-Aboriginal person. Uh, so are the are the entia from the dream time uh, real? They would say, well, yes. So you can see them. Well, no. They're not in this layer, right? right. Did are the stories you tell? Did they happen? Yes. Not here. Hmm. They happen in the other world. Are, are they true or false? Yes. Yes, they are true or false. So, 
<laughs> How does Philip K. Dick fit into all of this? Well, Philip K. Dick, I, I use that as a quote at the beginning of this new piece I'm writing. And he gave a speech called the Met speech. Now, here's the deal with Philip K. Dick. I love him. I love him. I love the guy. He's not a commonly cited source in our discipline. Um, but the guy was a, a genius. And if you want to read a lot about him, read, read a book called Divine Invasions. But what, what had happened to Philip K. Dick is he began to be, speak to a entity he began to identify as Valis. Now, nobody could see this creature, this whatever it was, but it was female. It, was, it spoke ancient Greek. And it warned him that his son had this obscure medical condition. And when he told the doctor to check for it, it turned out to be right. It knew things that somehow he, he could never know. And he began to believe that ideas are intelligent actors in a system. And he said, if, if ideas are intelligent actors in a system and not human actors, in that system, manipulating ideas, we better be hoping for a benevolent set of ideas to take precedent over the bad guys, right? And this idea of, this concept of autonomous ideas is the second quality it has, that ideas have a life of their own. And this gets to that, uh, that civic stuff. Right, that civic participation stuff, that activism stuff, that uh, that resounds in the mythic world. That it is through intelligent ideas acting on human speakers that the civic is made. Like the universe craves order through these autonomous ideas. And you see that over and over. Yet we have very little proof that our students become better citizens because they become better writers. But we do believe it. We do believe it that the civic speaks to us through the act of writing. And it, that I, I don't characterize that thinking as wrong or in error or you believe this wild mythology. Right. It, it has something to do with the structure of our mind and reality itself. Do you have a favorite uh, Philip K. Dick story? or uh, My favorite is the three stigmata of Palmer Eldridge. Why is that? Well, uh, in, in the story, there's this crazy exiled billionaire who goes into space and some... Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He goes into space. Yeah, just like Elon Musk. And like, uh, so, but unfortunately, there was something outside of reality waiting on a vessel to take over. And this possibly malevolent entity is not his spaceship turns around and he comes back with baby on board, right? This entity has taken control of Palmer Eldridge. And nobody knows what he's going to do. It's, it's like, what is Palmer Eldridge going to do when he gets back here? Because we banished him to space. And he found something horrible 
to punish us. Anyway, it's uh, it, it's a really cool book, but all his books are just marvelous. And he wrote them for some of them for a whole $58 a piece at one time. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I um I just want to comment and say that I can your 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 passion for like you really do really, really like Philip K. Dick. I can tell like uh the way that your uh, your passion and your voice and your body movement and things. Yeah, I get excited about a lot of things. <laughs> you know, I'm very enthusiastic. So well, uh, I know one thing you're enthusiastic about is and CFP for an edited collection that you're thinking. About. Yes. Dear, everybody's about got a pitch, right? Everybody's got a pitch. Everybody's got a pitch. So here's my pitch. Uh, podcast ease. Are they podcast ease? What are the, what is the audience? I don't know, but I love that. So we're going with it from now on. <laughs> podcast ease. Here's my pitch. So do you too have conceptual dread in your uh, attic or crawl space? I would like to hear about it. I would like to hear about myths. And, and with particular uh, attention to those who might know, have indigenous cultural backgrounds or have aptitude with African or, uh, or Spanish or indigenous languages native to Central and South America, or especially uh, you might have connections if you have connections to indigenous people in Austral Australasia, um, these uh, India, particularly, but not just you. Anyone? Do you have a myth? Do you have thoughts about myth? Right? Uh, maybe myth in rhetorical culture. Do you have thoughts about what is a rhetorical myth? And, and you're not obliged to agree with me because my definition's hazy anyway. How about the theory of myth and rhetoric? Uh, how about myth and the history of rhetoric? Myth and rhetorical pedagogy? Myth in our discipline? And uh, the, the I want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. And you feel free to write me day or night because I'm up. I don't sleep. So uh, how about mythos, logos, classical rhetoric, any of these things? But particularly if you know of a myth uh, from any culture, uh, North American indigenous cultures too. I don't understand what's going on with this coyote. Like, you got to tell me what the deal is with this coyote. Uh, because I am obviously a cultural outsider. Um, and I want to hear more. I need to know more. I must know. <laughs> uh, so you write me if you can, if you have an interest, and we'll propose a, an edited collection if we get enough interest. And the address you can write to is S D Ramsey, R-A-M-S-E-Y, 96 at gmail.com. I think one of the things I really appreciate about this conversation is that it, um, from my perspective, as someone who studies digital cultural rhetorics, right, mm. really demonstrates the broad, broad strokes, that's not the best way to say it, wideness 
of what our field is. And I really appreciate that about this conversation because it's not just that I don't know a whole lot about myth or that I read Phaedrus a long time ago and didn't read it in my PhD program. It's that I want to know more about this stuff, right? And I think other people do, especially if it's not within their wheelhouse, if you will, right? So I just wanted to mention that to you, Sean. I really appreciate, like, we are two scholars on very different ends of the rhetorical and rhetoric and composition spectrum, and I've really appreciated that about this conversation. Hey, but you know what? We are both and we are all needed. Right. Absolutely. It is it is our difference that is our strength in the field. Yes. I, we can work around here in ancient Sumeria and also on the cutting edges. Of, I mean, we it's marvelous. It's marvelous. And you don't have to be an expert to be interested. It, it's okay. Absolutely. Uh, you know. Uh, and uh, I respect all my colleagues. And I'll tell you what, if you, you want to, if there are some grad students listening and want uh, just there, a little piece are. of advice, a little piece of advice, the best, some of the best teachers, not the best, because that's that's my program. I know I'm not going to betray Sue Carter Wood or Jerry Murphy, who graciously helped me with my dissertation. Uh, but some of the greatest teachers you will ever meet if you're trying to get published are your peer reviewers. My colleagues have saved me from making the most humiliating statements you can imagine. Like, same <laughs> here. Uh, That's a good advice. I mean, and and take it as such. They're protecting you from you, but they're also helping you, and they're they're the greatest teachers you'll you'll meet after you graduate. What time is it there where you're at? It is 9.53 p.m. And so what are you going to do the rest of the evening since you don't sleep? Uh, uh, I'll probably write some more. Excellent. Sean, this has been such a great conversation, and it's really pushed me to think about the field and myth and uh, galvanize also my, in my, my interest um, in the history of rhetoric. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you. I'm so pleased to have done it. I'm so pleased to meet you. And I hope everybody has a good uh, morning, night, or whenever you, the podcastees tune in. His research is fascinating, and talking to him really illustrates the vast array of scholarship occurring in rhetoric, writing studies, and related fields. Don't forget to submit your nominations for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. I want to thank everyone who has donated so far to the award, but we need more help Please go to our Twitter page at the Big Ret and view our pinned tweet and donate if you can. Remember, everything you give us, we give back. To nominate someone for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, submit an email with your name 
institutional affiliation, a 200-word bio, and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the criteria for the award. Use the subject line Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31st, 2022. Self-nominations are welcome and previous nominees are encouraged to apply. For more information about the TBR podcast Emerging Scholar Award, please reach out at our website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com or shoot us an email, thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Remember, the due date for applications is May 31st. I'll be back next week with another new interview on the Big Rhetorical Podcast. We are creeping towards episode 100. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people. And we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lane, Stefa Helix, and Admiral Bob.